The following message was given by Bob Coughlin at the 2018 Worship God Conference held in Frisco, Texas. Uh, If you'd open your Bibles to Psalm 133, that's where we're going to be hanging out tonight. And from this divinely inspired passage, we're going to talk about the blessing of unity. You've heard about the glory of the church. Uh, We've heard about the foundation of the church. Tonight we're going to talk about the unity of the church. For 20 years, from 1985 to 2005, Julie and I would travel with our kids to Indiana University of Pennsylvania, IUP, to participate in an event called Celebration East. Celebration was a gathering of about a thousand, well, a couple thousand people from different Sovereign Grace churches. We all canceled our Sunday meetings that weekend and met for three and a half days of singing and preaching and fellowship and sports activities and, and all kinds of stuff. And for our kids, celebration was the highlight of their summer, possibly their year. Uh, it was just something we looked forward to all year. And the car ride was part of that memory. Most years, the trip was about four hours long. But at one point, we moved to uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, and the trip was 10 hours. And we would often caravan with other families and make memories along the way. And as we were doing this, hundreds of other families were doing the same thing from different states, from different ethnicities, from different professions, from different family sizes. In other words, we were different, but we were all coming to one place. And as we neared Indiana University, our thoughts turned to the joy of being with so many people we love for three and a half days. Singing God's praise, hearing God's word, praying together, experiencing God's presence, celebrating our common mission. It's a time we'll never forget. And I don't think it's too much of a stretch to imagine the Israelites singing or reciting Psalm 133 in a similar situation. If you didn't know it, Psalm 133 is the 14th of the 15 Psalms of Ascent. And these are precious Psalms, Psalm 120 through Psalm 134. They're most likely recited or sung by the Israelites as they made their way to Jerusalem on one of the three major feasts, three annual feasts, Passover, Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths. And we read about them. God's command to, to gather these three times in Exodus 23 Deuteronomy, and Deuteronomy 16. Exodus 23, 17 says, Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. But it's not just the males. In Deuteronomy 16, starting in verse 11, or in verse 11, we read, And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. Now listen to all the kinds of people who are coming to this event. You and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your towns, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are among you at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. All these different kinds of people from different walks of life, different areas, different tribes, different stations of life gathered for one purpose, and that was to worship the Lord in David's city, Jerusalem. And as they drew near, I don't know how they timed it. We don't know how they timed it. 
But it's, it's very possible that as they drew near, they were reciting a Psalm 133, Psalm of Unity. What a timely reminder of unity this psalm would be. What an assurance of God's blessing and the value of the distance they had traveled. So let's read it together. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. That is God's infallible, sufficient, authoritative, inerrant word. What we do every Sunday has some marked similarities to what the Israelites did as they made their way to Jerusalem on one of these feasts. People come from all walks of life, from all circumstances, diverse challenges, to remember and celebrate the blessing of our unity in Christ, enjoying God's presence, hearing God's word, singing his praise, celebrating our common mission and unity. Of course, that's not how it always works. It's not what it always looks like. Unity implies that there are differences. You can't, have, you can't talk about unity without there being differences. If there are no differences, we're talking about uniformity. Uniformity is when everyone is exactly the same. And that's how some churches think of unity. We're unified because, well, we shop at the same stores and we like the same kind of music, same kind of artists and bands, and we're about the same age and we frequent the same coffee shops and we vote for the same people. And we're, there's unity here. No, there's uniformity. That's different. And then some churches think of unity in a different way. It's, it's more like a pipe dream. It's, it's something they, they hope for, something they wish for. People are given to gossip and slander and envy and self-centered attitudes and, and bitterness. And they, they seem to live separate, uninvolved lives. And when you think about unity in the church, it sounds like great, it's great in theory, but it's not really applicable to my church. Like we don't do that kind of unity. Well, unity is not uniformity. There has to be a diversity. Otherwise, there's no need for unity. It's the difference between a fruit salad and a smoothie. In a fruit salad, there's distinction without division. It's all there, all the different pieces, but you can tell them apart. In a smoothie, you have no idea what's in there. <laughs> That's why I don't drink smoothies. Like, I can just put anything in that thing. The unity God desires for us, Israel, can be attained. This psalm talks about it. And it's much greater and much better than distinction 
where, well, I'm sorry, it's much better than a unity where everything's uniform or a unity that doesn't exist. And as we'll see, it's something that only God can give. How should we think about unity in the church? It's not uniformity. In some churches, it doesn't exist. How do we think about it? Is it really attainable? Can we, can we really think that a church can walk in unity? What does unity look like? Is it worth pursuing? And if so, how should we pursue it? And for us, what role does congregational worship play in unity? Well, those are some of the specific questions this psalm answers for us. Because God doesn't want us to be deceived or despairing when we think about unity in the church. This psalm reminds us in a powerful and beautiful way of this truth. Unity is a blessing from God that he wants his people to remember, treasure, and benefit from. Unity is a blessing from God that he wants his people to remember, treasure, and benefit from. It's not something that we, we should only imagine might be. God's telling us it's a blessing. How do we get there? What, what does it look like? Well, we're going to talk about three ways, three aspects of the blessing of unity. First, the blessing of unity appreciated. That's verse 1. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Behold. God wants to get our attention right from the start. He's saying, look at this. This is something uncommon. This is something you don't often see. Take note of it. Drink it in. Don't miss this. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. How good and pleasant. Now, some things are good and not pleasant, like 25-mile-per-hour speed limits on a long, straight road. Like, that's good. I know that's good. It's just not pleasant. Visits to the dentist. They're good, but they're not pleasant. Some things are pleasant and not good. Like sleeping in until nine on a school day or a work day. Like it feels so good to be getting that extra sleep until you wake up and realize you should have been at school like half an hour ago. That's not pleasant. Or taking a beautiful two-hour drive on the interstate in the wrong direction, <laughs> which I've done. <laughs> It was pleasant, but not good. Brothers dwelling together in unity is good and pleasant. And the word used for good here is the same word that's used in the creation account in Genesis, when God saw all that he had made, and it was good. And when he had made man, it was very good. It's almost as if the psalmist is saying, look, this is the way it's supposed to be. This is the way God intended it. This is what he wants. It's good. Now, not not all unity is good. The, the, those who were building the Tower of Babel were unified. God said, yeah, they're, they're of one mind. It wasn't good. A lynch mob is unified. It's not good. This is the unity of brothers, sisters, God's 
redeemed people. One in affection, one in purpose, one in action. It's the kind of unity that we see in the early church in Acts 2, verses 46 and 47. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That kind of unity is good. It's beneficial. It's life-giving. It's pleasant. It's, it's meant to affect us emotionally because it's so sweet. It's good and pleasant. Spurgeon said, a church united for years in earnest service of the Lord is a well of goodness and joy to all those who dwell round about it. It's good and it's pleasant. God wants us to notice that. Second aspect, the blessing of unity illustrated. Verses 2 and 3a. David's going to illustrate for us what God-given unity is like to stir our desire for it and to help us understand it. So he says, what's that unity like? What's that good and pleasant unity like? Here's what it's like. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. Now, I have to admit, that's not the most compelling illustration <laughs> I, could, I could think of. Can you imagine? <laughs> so, you come out of your Sunday meeting, maybe come home from the conference, someone says, how was it? How, how was it? Oh, man, it was, like, it was like oil being poured out of my head, coming down on my beard, like going down on my shirt. That's what it was like. <laughs> and the person says, well, well, that's really weird. What did you do there? What, what's that all about? And <laughs> I have to admit, before I prepare this message, uh, <laughs> I used to look at that and go, that's just not grabbing me. It's just, <laughs> I don't know. Okay, so let's find out what it's about. Exodus 30. God tells Moses on Mount Sinai to take the finest spices, myrrh, sweet-smelling cinnamon, aromatic cane, and cassia, and to make a sacred anointing oil blended by a perfumer. So this is, this is sweet stuff. And then he says, verse 30, chapter 30 of Exodus, You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. And you shall say to the people of Israel, This shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on the body of an ordinary person. And you shall make no other like it in composition. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it, listen to this, or whoever puts any of it on an outsider shall be cut off from his people. Okay, we're getting a little better idea of what, what the picture is. What, what is it about this anointing oil on Aaron that's on his head going down to his beard? Well, first we, we can see it's unique. It's a unique 
oil. It, it can't be used for other purpose. It, it had no other use. It was for anointing the high priest. It was set apart for that purpose. And just like that oil is holy, so the unity of brothers and sisters is holy. It's unique. When Christians dwell together in unity, especially those in our local churches, it's not like people getting together for a party or a football game or a basketball game or a concert or a political rally or a movie night. Our unity is set apart. It's different from all other kinds of unity. It's unique. We want to see it that way. We want to protect it because it's unique. Second thing that that passage tells us is that it's refreshing. It's sweet-smelling cinnamon. It's aromatic cane. It's cassia. It's myrrh. It's, well, we, we got a diffuser in our house. And this is not any promo for Young Living or essential oils or anything. But, but I love the smell of thieves. I just enjoy it. We got thieves spray, the cleaner, the household cleaner. And, you know, and we, it bugs me sometimes because we don't run it all the time. And it's, it's there. The diffuser is just sitting there. And like, I'm thinking, I could be smelling something really sweet right now. And I'm not getting it, and so I'm still working on it, getting a little more, because we ran out, so it's just sitting there. Now. Whatever smells good to you, this oil smelled better. It smelled great. It was sweet, and it was refreshing. And then this oil has a purpose. It's unique, it's sweet, and it has a purpose. It consecrated Aaron for service for representing God's people before him and representing God before his people, for offering sacrifices, for prayer, for teaching the law. And although this refers specifically to Aaron, the high priest, it's an appropriate comparison for the Israelites because God told them at Mount Sinai, you are to be a kingdom of priests. You, all of you, are to be a kingdom of priests. They are all anointed priests. And then we read in 1 Peter 2, 9, that we, the church, are a kingdom of priests. So our unity is unique, it's refreshing, and it sets us apart to serve, to minister. There's one more thing God says about this oil This is on his head, running down the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. What's that about? I mean, really, head, beard, robes, it sounds so gross, it sounds slimy. What's it about? Well, to the Israelites, they're thinking, wow, abundance, blessing, joy, consecration, and inclusion in the ministry of the high priest. It's flowing down. And you know what was on the the chest of the high priest? Twelve jewels, precious jewels inscribed with the names of the tribes of Israel. You know where that oil was coming down to? Over those names. Carried in there close to his heart. That's where it's coming down. What, What does that mean? Well, Derek Kidner says this in his commentary. He says, the figure of anointing portrays a people as differentiated, but also as integrated as a priest and his robes. 
a people among whom God's blessings are not the preserve of a few, but are free to spread and be shared, unifying the recipients all the more. Just as the anointing oil intended for the head was not confined to it, nor could its fragrance be contained. In other words, God doesn't intend there to be a specific in-crowd who are the only ones who are experiencing unity. Unity isn't a click. It's to be spread and shared. It's not my closest friends. Oh, we're in unity because I found the people that I really like who are just like me. That's not unity. That's a blessing. But that's not the unity that's being talked about here. This unity is inclusive. And it's made possible because we have a high priest who is greater than Aaron. The high priest here points to our great high priest, Jesus, who was not of the order of Aaron, the writer of Hebrews says, but of Melchizedek with no beginning nor end. And Hebrews 2.17 tells us, that he was made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And Hebrews 2 talks about how Jesus was anointed with the oil of gladness above his companions. You know where that oil flows? Onto us. His people, those he redeemed. Jesus is our full and final high priest. He is our representative before God and from God. He alone is the way we gain access into God's presence and find favor with him. Every one of us, all of us, the outcasts, the rebels, the ones we don't like to hang with, the awkward, socially awkward ones, ones who seem a little suspicious to us, the unworthy, the unlovable, all are brought into the unity of the triune God through the work of Jesus Christ. That's what it means for the error, the, the, the oil to flow down on the collar of his robes for us. And then he gives us a second illustration. Brothers dwelling together in unity is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. <laughs> That's not a lot more compelling than the first image. Um, you, you know, when, my relationship with dew is like if I have to go outside in the morning and I'm wearing like nice shoes, I'm thinking, I don't want that dew on my shoes. And, and it happens, you know, you're wearing leather shoes and it just gets on the dew. Or you're wearing, like, uh, sneakers or, you know, shoes that are of a cloth and they get wet. And I just don't like dew that much. That's not the way the Israelites thought about dew, praise the Lord. Uh, Zechariah 8.12 talks about how the summer crops depended on the dew for their maturity. Listen to this. In, in Genesis 27, when Isaac was praying for God to bless Jacob, he prayed that the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine would fall upon him. Proverbs 19.12 says a king's favor is like dew on the grass. So it meant something to those Israelites. It doesn't mean to us. 
But we need to remember what it means to them. It means refreshment and fruitfulness and abundance. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. That's what unity is like. What's Hermon? Well, Hermon was a mountain, about 10,000 feet high, apparently known for its dew. It was famous for its lush greenery, even in summer, like that crisp mountain air, 10,000 feet high. That's really high. Denver's what, like mile high? This is like twice as high as Denver. Zion, the mountains of Zion, they were about 100 miles, over 100 miles to the south of Mount Hermon. It's quite a distance. Not so refreshing, especially in the summer. I looked this up on the internet, so I know it's true. <laughs> the average rainfall in Jerusalem from May to September is one-tenth of an inch. One-tenth of an inch. That's five months. One-tenth of an inch. I mean, how does that come down? Like... Honey, I saw some drops. Just okay, okay, good. I mean, how does it come down all at once? I don't know. And yet here they are saying that being together is like the dew of Mount Hermon falling on Mount Zion. And two of the annual feasts occurred during May through September. So it's the hot months. They're coming and saying, you know what? This is just like the dew of, of Hermon falling right here. What are they saying? They're saying, like, being together with God's people is like experiencing the dew of Mount Hermon right now. That's what it's like. Minus when we, when we uh, lived in, in Philadelphia for a number of years, and actually we did this when we were in D.C. too, we would go to Maine sometimes in August. You know, but, but let me use Philly as an example. Uh, you know, Philly, hot, you know, just oppressive. We, what is it? I, you know, you live there. <laughs> uh, we go to Maine man it was like there are places that exist like this on the earth this, the, it's pristine is the word I'd use to describe it it's just everything so clear and crisp and so refreshing that's what they're saying unity of God's people is like it's just like that it'd be a miracle it is a miracle because it's that refreshing Unity is a blessing from God that he wants his people to remember and treasure and benefit from. So in those two illustrations, there's something we don't want to miss, and that's this. Three times the psalmist refers to the blessing or the dew or the oil running down, running down, falling. Where does this unity come from? It's coming from the Lord. It's not coming from us. It comes down from God. We can't produce this unity. Derek Kidner again says, In short, true unity, like all good gifts, is from above, bestowed rather than contrived, a blessing far more than an achievement. So often when we think about unity, we approach it from the other side, our side. When we think about unity, unity we almost always begin with what we can do. We've talk, I had a number of conversations here with, uh, about how do, we, how do we get at that? Do we use different musical styles? Do we advertise that we're a multi-ethnic church? Do we make sure that all our pictures of our church have diversity in them? What, what do we do? How can we do it? 
Unity is not something that we can work up. It's not something we can manufacture or produce on our own. Joy-filled diversity is the fruit of blessing, not the cause of it. It must come from the Lord. Now, it's not that there isn't anything we can do. It's just not the place we start. God doesn't bless us simply because we're diverse. We experience joy in diversity because he has blessed us. Which leads to the third verse and the third point, 3B. The blessing of unity commanded. Okay, so we have this oil on the head flowing down the beard, on the collar of the robes, this this precious, unique, refreshing, mission-minded anointing. We have the dew of Hermon falling on Mount Zion. Again, that's just that refreshing, life-giving air. And then the Lord says, or David says, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Now that phrase, commanded the blessing, is used in Leviticus 25, in Deuteronomy 28, when they speak of the Israelites producing abundant crops and are being blessed in everything they undertake. It's a wonderful promise to read it. You just go, whoa, because God's not saying, man, I hope you're blessed. I wish you were blessed. I wonder if you'll be blessed. He's commanding a blessing. He's saying, you will be blessed. No question about it. It's a good thing. It's a sure thing. And he says, there the Lord has commanded the blessing. Well, where is there? There the Lord has commanded the blessing. Well, right before it, he says, it's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Well, it might be Zion is where the Lord commands his blessing. But some commentators think it refers back to, Two, verse 1, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. There the Lord commands the blessing. It really doesn't make too much difference which one it is. God's people dwell together in unity in Zion because of God's blessing. And the blessing that God commands is connected to a people and a place. These are God's people. He owns them. There, and now there are those that he's redeemed through the blood of Christ, submitted to his lordship. That's the people they're talking about. That's where the Lord commands the blessing. And the place is God's presence. And both are signified by that picture of the oil flowing down from Aaron's head onto his beard, the collar of his robes. God's people, God's presence. And this blessing where God commands the blessing is comes to us through our great high priest, Jesus Christ. Listen to what he prayed on the night before he died. John 17, starting in verse 20. This is our high priest. I do not ask for these only, his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, 
I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you love me. That's our high priest. Notice that Jesus isn't praying for those who simply agree on the same music or the same liturgy or the same kind of coffee. He's not even praying for those who believe in unity. This is who he's praying for. Those who believe in him through their word. Those who believe in Jesus through the words of his disciples. So in other words, those who believe in him through the scriptures. That's who he's praying for. Those who believe in him through the scriptures. And the point of that unity is that all might believe that the Father has sent Jesus into the world as the only Savior. So what what we see from this psalm and this prayer is that unity must never be pursued at the cost of truth. You can't do that. We can't pursue unity at the expense of God's word. We can't pursue unity at the expense of the gospel. It's not unity. Because the blessing that's poured out on brothers in unity has a distinct origin and a distinct purpose. It's to magnify Jesus Christ. It's to magnify his word. That's why why the unity that we can experience when singing together always has to be evaluated. You know, scientists have discovered that there is a chemical release when we sing that makes us feel more unified with people. That's not the unity that God's talking about in Psalm 133. It's not the unity that Jesus was praying for. It's, it's a unity that's built around specific truths. And if our singing is not giving us a clearer picture of the uniqueness of the sacrifice of Christ, its substitutionary nature, if it's not showing us the supreme authority of God's word and the unique identity of God's redeemed people, it's not serving our unity. We might feel like we're one, but it's not. We're not, we're not getting any closer to being one. But as our songs and our prayers and our scriptures point people's hearts to the one faithful high priest, the one and only sacrifice for our sins, the one who overcame the forces of evil and the grave, as our songs, scriptures, and prayers display the word of God and the transforming power of grace, we will experience the unity that comes from God. It's unique. It's refreshing. And it's not built on the fact that we are all the same. During lunch, we were, some of us were in the back just talking about different things. Brian, Anthony were back there. Uh, Matt, Mason, I think Craig. 
And uh, Brian was, was sharing just different things about the hip-hop world. We were just having this conversation. And I'm realizing at numerous points, I don't have a clue what you're talking about. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and Matt apparently knows this stuff. Matt Mason had to, had to return home today. But he's like asking questions. Hey, what about KB? What about... I'm just, I'm just like, okay, should I be in this room? Okay, yeah, I want to hear. I want to learn. But, you know, you know how sometimes you're in conversation where, like, so much is overhead, you don't even know what questions to ask? Like, you just, you just feel you say something stupid. So, um, but, but here is what I know, specifically about Brian, who we're going to hear preach the word tomorrow. Brian recognizes that apart from Jesus Christ dying in his place for his sins, he would be lost. He would be condemned. Brian believes that the word of God is our sufficient authority and that there are no mistakes in it. It's inerrant. It's infallible. And that we meet God in that word. Brian believes that the Holy Spirit actually works in people's lives to to change us and that being Christian isn't being nice, being a nice citizen. And I hear those things in Brian. I see those things in Brian. And for all the differences that exist in our upbringing in our lives, I feel unity with this brother. And anyone like him. Why? Because it's a unity that comes from God. It comes from him. We can't produce that. If we're looking around at people thinking, well, we just need to get them, you know, to look like us and be like us, we are so off in terms of the unity that God produces. Because the unity that God produces was secured by our high priest. It's unique. It's it's refreshing. And it's for a purpose. And the good news, the good news is that Jesus not only prayed for our unity, he secured our unity. He secured it. Listen to Ephesians 2, verses 14 through 16. He himself is our peace who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. It it can move me to tears to think about the fact that I, like an old white guy, can feel so connected to, how old are you, Brian? A really young, like I'm almost twice his age. <laughs> African-American guy. We're so different, but because of Jesus, he's torn down hostility. He's torn down the wall. Are we seeing that in our churches? Are we looking for that in our churches? Are are we believing God for that in our churches? Don't expect music to do what only the gospel can do. Don't expect music to do what only the word of God can do. I I was talking to a a leader in in, um, 
Nashville. He was part of a church, and uh, he said, we, we have a, um, we're, we're, we're kind of ethnically mixed a little bit, <laughs> and, uh, but we're right on, the, right on the, the line of a poor part of the city. And we, we really want to, like, you know, be, be more appealing and, and, you know, be unified with the Christians there. And so, 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 like, what, what do you think we should do? Should we, you know, like, start doing different kind of music and stuff? And I said, do you have, like, any brothers in the band? I said, no. Okay, don't do that. <laughs> um, uh, all right. Um, I said, well, here, here's, what, here's what I think. Here, I just want to ask you a question. Do you have any relationships with anybody from this place you want to reach? He said, oh, yeah, like a bunch of us get together to play basketball with these guys, like, you know, once a week. Well, that's where you start. You love them. You build relationships with them. You let them see Jesus shine through you. They, they, they will know that God sent Jesus to save us by our love for one another. So as we love one another, as we share that love with them, well, who knows what God might do through that? Don't, don't expect music to do what only Jesus can do. But be sure that unity is a blessing that God wants us to remember and treasure and benefit from. It's not a pipe dream. Jesus secured it. Oh, that we might see every Sunday as the Israelite pilgrims did. Coming together to experience that joy-filled, unique, rich, selfless blessing that God gives to those who dwell in unity. It It just stirs your soul. I'm going to meet with people that Jesus has brought together in unity. Oh, I can't wait. And then you, you, know, you run into someone and they come up close to you, they just have really bad breath. Oh, man, so hard. You know what? Bad breath comes in different forms. Sometimes it's like this. Sometimes it's the way people speak. Sometimes the way people don't greet. Sometimes it's the way people are selfish. Sometimes it's the way people are harsh. Sometimes it's the way people are critical. Sometimes... It's all kinds of bad breath in the church. We want to see that Jesus has, through his blood, invited us all into the unity of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Oh, oh, that we too could gather at Mount Zion and experience the dew of Hermon. Well, you know what? We don't have to go to Israel to do that. Matt references pastors last night. The good news is that's exactly what's happening every time we gather. Hebrews 12, verses 22 through 24. And, and uh, Jimmy sang about it earlier. You, you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So it's not even just about the unity we're experiencing in our church. It's the unity with the saints of heaven. Like when we gather, that's who we're in unity with. It's amazing. 
in each Sunday, we, we travel five minutes, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, maybe an hour to gather with God's people to experience the blessing. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon that falls on the mountain of Zion. For there, right there, the Lord has commanded the blessing, life, forevermore. And our meetings are a little microcosm of the journey that is our lives. One day, this journey will end. This journey will end. And all those who have turned from their sins and trusted in the finished work of Christ will finally be home. And there won't be any more trips. There won't be any more journeys. No more travel. We'll be home. And this is what we'll be saying. How good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell in unity. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. That's, that's a sure and certain future. And may that reality fill us with hope for our churches. As you think about your church, as you think about the struggles, the problems, remember, God commands the blessing. And where does that blessing come from? Does it come from us looking at each other and trying to make us all more unified? Not exactly. During my son's seminar today, Devin's seminar, he talked about how in Revelation 7, in Revelation 5, people from every tribe and language and people and nation, they're unified, they're in unity. What's making them in unity? The object of their attention. They're all looking to the one on the throne and to the Lamb. Let's do that. Let's do that and see what God does, that we might, every time we gather, remember, treasure, and benefit from the unity that is ours in Jesus Christ. Let's not settle for, for shallow unity. Let's receive the unity that God has given us in his son. It's a blessing. Father, we thank you that you are faithful and that you have given us a unity that the world can't take away. Thank you, Jesus, that you secured that unity. Thank you that you have enabled us to experience a unity the world knows nothing about because it's in Christ, our hope, our Savior, our lives. And may our lives reflect increasingly, may our churches reflect increasingly the joys of that unity which you have promised and secured through the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Bob Coughlin given at the 2018 Worship God Conference held in Frisco, Texas. For more information on the conference, please visit worshipgodconference.com.